This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. to episode 134 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, with the help of special guest Caitlin Starling, we discuss Jonathan Demme's 1991 film, The Silence of the Lambs. Our guest this week is Caitlin Starling, a writer of horror-tinged speculative fiction of all flavors. Her first novel, The Luminous Dead, was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. Caitlin also works in narrative design and has been paid to design body parts. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. So glad we got to have you on. Uh, we had a conversation about this a little while ago, I think at a social or something mm-hmm. here in Portland. And you mentioned The Silence of the Lambs as being a project you were interested in coming on to talk about. So I- I'm curious, why why this project? Uh, the easy answer is just that my last name literally is Starling. Um, although I don't get <laughs> as many Hello Clarice jokes as you would think, or Good Evening Clarice jokes as you would think. But... Um, I was called Agent Starling once at like a day camp when I was six and had no idea what that reference was. Um, But the actual (laughs) reason is that um, not only did I read the book and watch the movie and love them both when I was younger, but I also have just, you know, had this book. It's been out for a year now, so it hasn't just come out. But The Luminous Dead is in some ways, in TV tropes language, a Hannibal lecture for most of the uh, the book it's two characters talking to each other one of whom is quite dangerous and is and it's a battle of wills between them and um, I I didn't fully make that connection until I was rewatching last night but I was like oh yeah that's why <laughs> that's why this seemed like the right fit so that's uh, a guy or an M I I just started your book uh, I think yesterday I'm definitely several <laughs> chapters in loving it so interesting this is definitely the kind of book I I love to read. Um, tense, claustrophobic, kind of sci-fi tinge, cave diving, uh, super fun. I'm really into it, so no spoilers. Um, but <laughs> I'm definitely going to be finishing that this week. Um, and I can see the connection that you're making there. I-, I was thinking about that, how a lot of the drama so far, I mean, it's not all the drama, but a lot of the drama has been between these two characters and their friction with each other and their conversations with each other, mm-hmm. which is a main yeah, thing for this movie and for the book, which we talked about last week. Yeah. I love the idea that a story can just be about two two characters, Wills, and their battle for sort of dominance over the other, or maybe sort of just like strategic vying for for some sort of goal. Yeah, there was a there was an element of writing it where I was like, can I actually sustain it over an entire book where it's just these two characters and you're just looking at the evolution and very sometimes subtle, sometimes very large changes and how they relate to each other and what they think of each other how much they trust each other slash need to trust each other. Um, that mm-hmm. right. At first I wasn't, you know, when I was first drafting it, I was like, eh, we'll see if this can actually last a whole book. Um, but it did. It <laughs> lasted a 432-page book. <laughs> That's funny. And so the, so the connection is just, just coincidental, though, it, seen, it sounds like, right? It wasn't like you had Hannibal in the brain or anything like that. Not consciously. I mean, I like I said, <laughs> did read the books and watch, you know, read the book and watch the movie. Read all of the books of the series, including... That really bad prequel. Okay, Hannibal Rising. That's the only one yeah, I haven't Hannibal seen. Rising. I haven't seen or read. 
that one is special. Um, turns out Hannibal <laughs> is a weeaboo, which I was not expecting. <laughs> Wait, I, I, what does weeaboo mean? I, oh, I, like I like a, just a huge know. like Japanese fandom nerd. Me, Luke, me, a weeb, dude. You don't know? <laughs> I don't know what it means. I've seen it on the internet, and I'm I'm too afraid to ask. I'm like that other meme. <laughs> I don't know what a weeb is now, and I'm too afraid to ask. <laughs> S- you know, spoiler if you haven't read Hannibal Rising, but essentially he had. Um, his uncle was married to a hot young Japanese woman who Hannibal was obsessed with, and th- and she taught him how to use a katana or something. It was very weird. <laughs> like I thought, I thought Hannibal got weird towards the end with uh, the breastfeeding stuff, but yeah, Thomas Harris still had some gas left in him. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read any of the other books. This is my first Thomas Harris novel I've actually read. Oh gosh, <laughs> um, I think I started Red Dragon years ago, but I never finished it. Um, but I've seen all the other movies, and I've seen Hannibal the TV series. Um, have you seen Have you seen that one? I haven't seen all of it. I've seen yeah. all of season one and most of season two, and then it, I wasn't keeping up with it, and now I have to go buy it, and I haven't done that yet. Right, yeah. They need to put it on Netflix or something. Yeah. I, it's, I think it's worth it. I, I think the oh, later yeah. seasons are maybe maybe even better than the first season, and I think season two was pretty solid, but it's been a while, so I, I could have some stuff mixed up. But anyway... <laughs> That's not what we're covering. We're covering Silence of the Lambs. Um, so, so you said that you have read the book and seen the film. Do you remember if you could guess like when you saw it, and did you see or read it first? Gosh, I don't remember if I saw or read it first because I believe it happened very close together. I would assume that mm. that meant means that I watched it first. I think that would have been easier for me to find because, like I said, I was like maybe eleven or twelve or thirteen. Um, I was really into the Discovery Channel's crime shows at the time. This is before ID Discovery branched off, like just before ID Discovery became a thing. Um, And also I was reading Anne Rice at the time. So it was a nice, like perfect confluence Mm -hmm. of true crime and um, lush, dark writing. The main thing I remember from reading the book was the copy I had, and it it was either Silence of the Lambs or Hannibal, and I don't remember which, but it had a preface by Thomas Harris it was talking about his process. I think it was probably Hannibal because he was responding to the popularity of Silence of the Lambs, where he basically said that Hannibal Lecter just lived in his head and would chime in with random stuff all the time. And occasionally it would turn into a story (laughs) and he'd write it down. And I remember being um, very infatuated with that idea and thinking that 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 was like, okay, that's the proof that a character is fully, you know, a a character that they seem like a real person. Although I, I think I also was a bit like, okay, dude, maybe take a step back uh do do, do your characters speak to you in that way now that you are the uh, published author um not directly (laughs) it's not like they're talking to me (laughs) um i do if anything i would say it's closer to like woo woo channeling in the sense that if i'm in the zone i don't tend to consciously think what would this character do now it tends to just flow and then if it feels wrong i just back up and redo it and if it, if it keeps feeling wrong like three or four times, I like get it into my forebrain and actually think it through logically and try and fix it that way. But um, most of the time, it just kind of happens naturally. And if it's not, that means that the book's not ready. So it's kind of, kind of in the right. middle there. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so I have a little bit of a personal connection to this film in a roundabout way, too. Um, not only is it a movie that I, I always enjoyed growing up, I, I, I saw it way too young. I, you know, I was probably like... <laughs> 10 or something and i saw it and it gave me nightmares um 
But I also thought it was cool. Like, I, I don't know, like Hannibal Lecter was the kind of character that was was terrifying, but also he was he had so much power and he was so smart that that was the kind of character I, that I was like, ooh, he's such a badass. I don't know. He was, mm-hmm. I, I looked up to him in some ways, <laughs> which is a fucked up thing to say. But you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think I think if you see it too young, you don't necessarily pick up on all of what's what's being said there. And he kind of seems like a monster. He kind of just seems like a horror monster that's all creepy and scary and uh i i can tell i think i saw it too young as well and i felt i felt the same way but you know as time goes on and you start to realize what's what's under the surface there you're like wow this is this is pretty pretty close to what could actually happen in real life and it's it's even more terrifying yeah i mean mm-hmm. i have I've, I've, i have two feelings on that and the first is that when i was young i actually i i tr- it turns out on a rewatch now i like him less than i did as a kid yeah, um he creeps me out a lot more and yeah. a very again like mm-hmm. a real way like you're saying um but yeah. when I was a kid, that the just the sheer amount of intimacy between him and Clarice, and it's not like a pleasant in- intimacy, but it's a very intimate relationship. Um, mm-hmm. That I really responded to. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the more that I've gotten older and learned more about, you know, real life serial killers and things like that, he's too clever. Real serial mm-hmm. killers aren't like that, and so it's it's always you know that makes him. You know, the elevated, he's what Ted Bundy wishes he'd been. That's that's who Ted Bundy was <laughs> right. trying to convince people he was. But Ted Bundy was not that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Luke and I mentioned how he's almost, he, it's almost supernatural. Like his sense of smell, like all of mm-hmm. these things that he talks about. Well, and he doesn't yeah. get things wrong. Yeah. All of his assumptions exactly. about yeah. Clarice, um, aside from the weird fixation he has on suggesting that she's been sexually abused at some point, everything besides that he seems mm-hmm. to be spot on mm-hmm. about and... He doesn't, he's never corrected. We never see him be like mm-hmm. brought up short and be like, okay, no, dude, you're wrong. Right. Which is, which is a clever bit of storytelling there yeah. too, because it gives him so much power. And, and I, I think I made this point last week and I was thinking of it again. He does seem like a dark Sherlock Holmes to me in that sense. Oh, too. absolutely. Like, Sherlock Holmes is that way too, where like he just knows way more than he possibly could. And he's so brilliant and everyone's in awe of his brilliance. And that's exactly what's going on with Hannibal. And we see that in those scenes, too. Not only is his brilliance, but his danger. Like, there's a hundred people in that aircraft uh, hangar when he shows up. You know what I mean? Like, the security is so over the top and insane. And it just adds so much weight to this character because he's, he's immobilized. You know, he's got the mask on and everything, yet everyone's terrified of him. Um, so he, he just, he's given so much power and such a great scene. Um, but I'm getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. Uh, I was trying to talk about w- my personal connection. Um, my cousin, uh, I guess once removed, um, it was really good friends with Jonathan Demme. And he has cameos in, I think, all of his movies. Um, and he is in this movie. He is the preacher on the screen when the screen is oh. like the punishment. And he's the guy who he's been, the volume's been turned down, but he's 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 the preacher on the screen. Um, and that's uh, Jimmy Roach. Um, uh, he he's an artist. He you know he's a cool guy. Uh, I haven't really talked to him as much as I'd like to over the years, but uh, I just wanted to shout him out because I've always known about that. You know, I was told this story, and so there was always this fun like personal family connection to this film, even if it's just a cousin. But I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, that is super cool. Uh, knowing that when that moment popped up, I was like, there he is. He's gesturing <laughs> on the <laughs> TV is. and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was fun. And, and like, what a scene to cameo in, right? Like, the the scene. Yeah. Like, the scene where Clarice and, and Hannibal meet for the first time. Uh, the second that time. That scene is just... Well, the sec- second time. Oh, yeah. you're right, yeah. The, the first, sorry, the the first time, time where they yeah. really meet. 
because that first yeah. time they're both they're both posturing and there's no intimacy. That scene's where they mm-hmm. the first bits of their intimate connection start. It's when because she, she goes back on her own. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite clear that she just decided to go there to talk to him. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was very much like a house call she's making, uh, which is very different than being sent there deliberately uh by by the, by the commissioner <laughs> the fbi what is his name i always forget this guy uh, jack crawford jack crawford thank you i'm terrible with character names that is like an ongoing thing on this podcast i so did take it'll copious notes um <laughs> including about how jack crawford is a john douglas xp so if you ever want to talk about, if we want to get into actual like true crime stuff i have a bit about that ready to go really yeah um cool. actually if you've if you've watched the tv show mindhunter that's about john mm-hmm. douglas who basically started the oh, behavioral okay. science unit at the FBI, who Jack Crawford is mm-hmm. exactly patterned off of. You know, if you've watched Mindhunter, you know that his his method is a little bit different than what Clarice goes in with, uh, <laughs> or that Jack Crawford yeah. has in Red Dragon, um, in that John Douglas is very, very... I just listened to an interview with him. He is very firm on the fact that you cannot trust a single thing out of a serial killer's mouth. Mm. They will lie. And um, most of the people who ever interviewed them believe their lies because they're like, you know, they're fascinated mm-hmm. by the story and they lean into that mythologizing that happens. And instead, he would come in knowing their case record forwards and back, have no notes in front of him and call them on their bullshit when they started just grandstanding. And it right. made them weirdly respect him and open up about some of the the other details, but of course he always took those details with a grain of salt because same thing. He knew that they could still very well be lying to him. Yeah, that's why when you ever look up uh like the uh like the numbers of of killed for any serial killer, you'll always see a stat that says like, and they claim they've killed two hundred or something. Right. Yep. You'll always see that stat. Like they always have some astronomical number that they say they've they've killed. So, there's that, and then there's you know. also they usually will not claim kills that they did early where they feel like they screwed them up which if we want to actually get back into silence of the lances i know i'm taking us on a tangent yeah let's do it that actually i mean <laughs> that right. comes up really early that's you know the first one of our first really not our first encounter with with buffalo bill but we do get to see one of his early kills and that's what gets clarice started down the road and it's one that he probably would not have acknowledged right and i mean ultimately leads to his downfall mm-hmm. also like that that's the that's the the big the big clue there um I, I think this is a good time to jump into filmmaker a little bit and then we can yeah, sort of just yeah. jump, jump into plot and and talk about everything so jonathan demi was an american director producer and screenwriter best known for directing the psychological horror film silence of the lambs which i think we should talk about is this horror is it ultimate like dark thriller like i think i think it's interesting to think about the fact that you know Hannibal Lecter is kind of like a Halloween costume now and, and all this stuff where it's kind mm-hmm. of this this movie to me after especially after this viewing seems much more thriller than that yeah. it's kind of fascinating that he's become a horror character I mean watching it now and again this is probably just because I spend way too much of my time consuming true crime related things <laughs> um, it just to me uh-huh. I, I watched it as a very effective crime thriller and I say mm-hmm. that it, it's it's not your standard crime thriller in particular um and i know we'll get into this but you know the scoring and the lighting in it and just the Mm -hmm. way it's set up and paced really makes it unique and haunting and intense but it's weird because it's kind of two movies in one isn't it it's buffalo bill is a is a crime thriller and hannibal is not Mm -hmm. and his arc wraps up at what the three quarters point of the movie yeah 
Um, yeah. And I noticed that when I was watching that sort of my the way I was watching the movie changed at that point. Yeah. And the book's the same way. I mean, this is something we talked about last week. And I was I was really impressed with the structure of this story and, and how it played out and how there was these different arcs going on. And there's two antagonists and they, they shift back and forth. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's a complicated, complicated plot and uh, masterfully handled. And this movie clocks in at like a quick two hours. Like it's right under two hours. Um, and like you said, I think, I think it's really well paced and, um, I'm impressed that it didn't bloat longer, especially when you have a full novel that you can touch on and yet still feels so faithful. Oh yeah. As we talked about in the book episode, it feels like they took the book and turned it into a screenplay. Like there's, there's not a ton, uh, that's been changed and it feels like you said, very faithful. Uh, but to jump back to Jonathan Demme, Mm -hmm. he's best known for Silence of the Lambs for which he won Academy Award for Best Director. He is known for his casual humanist films such as Melvin and Howard, Swing Shift, Something Wild, Married to the Mob, Philadelphia, and Rachel Getting Married. He has also directed numerous concert films such as Stop Making Sense, Neil Young, Heart of Gold, and Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. He also did some some TV. I saw a bunch of episodes of different shows and stuff, so he's done he's done a lot of different things. Yeah, he's pretty prolific and and you know, it sounds like one of your relatives is is was good friends with him, so that's cool. Yeah. I also saw that just just you know coincidentally, we you and I our alma mater is University of Florida. He graduated from the University of Florida, so right. Nice little yep. Gator shout out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <shout> out. <laughs> but I mean, this this film uh, was originally going to be directed by Gene Hackman, who who purchased the rights to the story, and uh, I actually read that. Jodie Foster, after reading the story, went to went to buy the rights and found out that Gene Hackman had already purchased them from before she could get to it. Uh, but anyway, so he was going to direct and potentially star as either Crawford or Hannibal Lecter um, and mm-hmm. eventually left the project. And in comes Jonathan Demme. And I think Jonathan Demme brought a lot to this film. Um, I think it's I don't think it's an over exaggeration. I think everybody universally almost loves this film. Um, I think there are things that people point to as potentially problematic but um you know it's mm-hmm. on the afi list of top 100 films of all time it's i think it's universally loved and i think jonathan demi's voice while subtle in this movie can definitely be seen in sort of his direction um definitely throughout the whole movie one of the things i picked up on this time um this i i, I saw someone mention this before and it kind of tipped me off to it and then i was looking for it was just uh, the uh, the way people just stare they stare at the, they stare at the camera. They stare at Clarice all the time. There's like an uncomfortable amount of eye contact yes, there's, in this yeah. movie, and it starts from the very beginning. Because I was looking for it this time. It's every character she encounters at the FBI yep. just stares at her. Yeah, yeah and it's really effective because we are like she is the audience stand-in. I think in many ways, so yeah. like we feel like we're being stared at. Right? They're often also mobbing her. Um, aside mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. when she's with Hannibal, she's often, or with, with Buffalo Bill at the end, she's often surrounded by much taller men in particular. Yeah, way taller. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, like, my first things, like, I had never really fully paid attention to the opening. And it's just this great set of contrast. You know, you have the woman alone jogging in the forest, which is the epitome of um, serial criminal bait that we see in true mm-hmm. crime, you know, never go jogging by yourself. <laughs> yeah. But she's also at the, she's at Quantico. She's, you know, in sweats. She's going through the obstacle course. She's sweating. But then she gets in, mm-hmm. she gets in to go see Jack Crawford. And you notice she's wearing pearl earrings. You know, she's, she's talking to, to, to Jack Crawford with, you know, the sweat V down her front and back and her pearl earrings. 
And, you know, her body language just exudes, you know, do not fuck with me. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's super capable too. that that crazy rope rope ladder flip thing. Oh, and, yeah. And yeah. All, all of the stuff that goes on there, I think it is like well, very quickly showing. And she's also by herself and she runs. I think we see other like groups of people that are together and she's kind of a lone wolf out there kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, preparing. Well, and she literally is 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 pulling herself uphill, right? Like mm-hmm. metaphorically, yeah. just this is uphill struggle for her. And the music that's playing. I think is, oh my god, scene. let's. That's a great point. Let's talk about the music. So, oh my god, uh, it's beautiful. Howard Shore, <laughs> the composer. Howard Shore, incredible composer. Uh, and I was one that I was shocked to to see on this. But God, if that if the score isn't just completely perfect, I felt that it it invokes sort of like a detective feel, almost like a callback to noir of like the you know the 40s and 30s 40s 50s and yet at the same time it was much scarier much more creepy than anything like that it, it felt kind of and the score that plays at the very beginning of the movie too like we open with some creepy she's jogging in the woods and and it's sort of this like somber yet overbearing and and um haunting like there's it already feels like mm-hmm. it's it's gonna go down some dark paths it uh it really reminded me of from the the score for Vertigo, the Prelude. Okay, yeah, it's that same that. sort of tense but orchestral and lush, but just slightly off tone, and it has you just immediately unsettled, but also really drawn in. Yeah, that's a good I point. Love that. Howard Shore's killing it, man. He's been a, <laughs> he's been a, a favorite of the podcast. How? What else is he? <laughs> what else did he score? He scored the the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, little little trilogy <laughs> with a with a pretty remarkable uh, you know soundtrack. Yeah, memorable at the least, right? And incredible. And yeah, then, yeah I, I feel like we've seen him in something else, but I might be wrong about that. Maybe it's just Lord of the Rings because we've spent so many episodes talking about. I think he would go on to to work with Jonathan Demi a lot. I think he worked on Philadelphia, which Tom Hanks was in, sort of okay. uh, story about the AIDS crisis, and it was mm-hmm. you know an early '90s movie. Um, yeah, you know, I I think it, it's cool to see like a composer director duo sort of form and then continue on together because they they have that short short form like sort of la- like internal oh, language that, with each other. And, and I think that means he did the Hobbit films too, right? With Peter Jackson. <laughs> I, I I don't actually know, but I would think so. Probably. I think he yeah. did. I think he did. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to get back to the form of what you guys were talking about the shots that are directly to camera and like what what we think that invokes because that is i think one of the most notable things because that's a big bold choice i think that can go off the rails really quickly if you don't have really great performances and people are going to camera there's no there's nothing else in the scene but their performance and just yeah what it what it means we get sort of we're if we're if we're looking at someone they're slightly the the camera slightly low angle so that they're looking down at us if it and like you know us being clarice's point of view so there's like sort of that dominant um, stare, intense judging uh, camera work going on, and then if we're if we're looking at her, she doesn't necessarily look to camera. She she's mm-hmm. looking mostly to camera, but there are times that she's not, and hers are a lot of the time from a high angle. So, so again, like we're from the perspective of whoever she's speaking to and looking down at her. She looks through the camera a lot, especially when she's talking to. Well, most I, pretty much only when she's talking to Hannibal. She'll get this really great faraway look that doesn't look, you know, ditzy or anything like that. It just looks, I mean, it looks traumatized because he is, in effect, mm-hmm. in, in effect, traumatizing her again. Um, yeah. But, you know, she, and it'll, it'll cut between them staring at each other and neither of them is looking away. And then usually when one of them looks away, the other will too. 
which is an interesting thing. Yeah, it's so uncomfortable too. We get that there's the shot that Clarice looks. She's uh, so it's we're in her perspective, first person view, and you know she's meeting with Hannibal, I believe, for the first time. She's looking at his his drawings on the wall. And then slowly mm-hmm. we pan back to Hannibal and he's just staring at camera. And it's the creepiest thing to just like reveal him staring so intensely. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really un- just uncomfortable stuff really puts you on your back. As the audience, you're just like, ooh, this doesn't feel like an- any movie that I've seen recently. Sort of feels unique. If I recall, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but I heard at some point that um, Anthony Hopkins basically did not, would pick periods of not blinking. So he does blink in the movie, but when he is doing one of those stare moments, he does not blink. And it's a very subconscious thing to the viewer, but it's super unsettling because Mm -hmm. like the time is going on and on and on. And his his eyes are not changing. His mouth may be moving, but his eyes aren't changing. I didn't I didn't even know that. But now that you say it, I feel like I I feel like I did subliminally know that, you know, I feel like with the way that he was staring, there's there's something about the way he angles his face too, and the lighting they have behind him and like his face is in shadow yet his shoulders are illuminated. Just it's it's so creepy. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I didn't I mean, the not blinking thing. Of course, he did that. How did I not you know, how did I not even realize that? It's so funny. It's Anthony Hopkins (laughs) was doing stuff like that. Yeah, I was staring at his eyes. You know, like, and I noticed the lack of blinking, except for he does this thing sometimes where he would like half blink and he would do it at particular moments. Um, it was usually whenever uh, Clarice would reveal something painful, like a painful memory. And he would do this kind of like half blink. He didn't fully shut his eyes. Um, and I, I thought that was actually a really interesting choice because I think you can read it as empathy at first. But, like, on this repeat viewing, I was thinking about um, the character in the novel being said to sort of uh, kind of drink tears, essentially, like the moth that he's compared to. Um, and I was thinking that maybe he's actually relishing hearing the pain in her voice. And th- that's a moment of, like, uh, of pleasure in his eyes. And it's interesting how, like, that recontextualized the whole moment for me. Whereas you can see it as, like, oh, he's actually empathetic to, to her struggles. And I love that this this little moment can be, you know, like, uh, open to interpretation to the audience. So did you guys want to jump into some plot? I'll read a paragraph and we can kind of react to all of the goings on. Yeah, let's do it. All right. I'm eager. FBI trainee Clarice Starling is pulled from her FBI training by Jack Crawford of the Behavioral Science Unit. He assigns her to interview Hannibal Lecter, whose insight might prove useful in the pursuit of a psychopath serial killer named Buffalo Bill, who kills young women and then removes the skin from their bodies. Starling travels to the Baltimore State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, where she is led to Lecter's solitary quarters. Although initially pleasant and courteous, Lecter grows impatient with Starling's attempts at dissecting him. As she is leaving, one of the prisoners flicks semen at her. Lecter, who considers this act unspeakably ugly, calls Starling back and tells her to seek out an old patient of his. This leads her to a storage shed, where she discovers a man's severed head with a moth lodged in its throat. Starling returns to Lecter, who tells her that the man is linked to Buffalo Bill. He offers to profile Bill on the condition that he may be transferred. So I'm interested in the fact that that leaves out um, the lovely interaction with Dr. Chilton. Because, um, I mean, I know like plot summaries, you know, you cut a lot of fat. I've I've read enough synopses that I know that. (laughs) But at the same time, um, what really struck me about that entire opening sequence is that aside from Crawford and Hannibal and in different ways, um, every other person we see her interact with is trying to get her to respond in a specific way. Even Crawford is a little bit, but you have Chilton hitting on her and then getting mad when she's not receptive. You have Barney trying to be really sweet and nice to her, and he's really, he is really nice, but she's there to do her job. 
And then you have Hannibal, mm. who, up until um, her, you know, her clumsy way of trying to foist that that uh, questionnaire on him, ticks him off. He is trying to measure her. He's not assuming anything. It, it's weird because he's still coming to conclusions and and acting on them, but it feels different. Um, because he's actually seeking out information and trying to get her to reveal herself as opposed to just, you know, going, oh, you're a woman, so I'm going to hit on you, like Chilton does. I really hate Chilton. Oh, he's the worst. My, the worst. I, I have I have very large, angry all caps in my notes whenever he shows up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's actually an interesting moment, too, with Chilton. It's, it's that scene, it's that really brief little moment that's filmed from weird angles, all in red lighting, where he's explaining yep. what Hannibal did to the nurse. And it's this really weird, very, it feels very interior and internal, and almost like mm -hmm, Chilton mm -hmm. shouldn't be there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's this moment where we're seeing Clarice really start to, you know, click into Hannibal's orbit and what that might mean. And I, like, I noticed that, and then of course we have the the night vision at the end. So you have these two interesting bookend moments of Clarice and weird intimate lighting. <laughs> mm. I have I actually have a, another observation with, with the ending that I honestly hadn't thought of until now. Uh, I guess I'll talk about it here. Cause why not? Uh, the, <laughs> I think it's interesting to note, first of all, every, all of the training that we see, which I, I do want to sort of talk about something that I mentioned in the book episode. I remembered the film having less to do with the, with the school, um, the FBI training and everything. And I was wrong with that. There was, there was a, quite a bit of it, just probably about as much as there was in the book. Um, but all of the training that we see sort of her, you know, forgetting to check her six at the one point when the, you know, mm -hmm. one of her instructors says he forgot, she's checking her six when nearing the end as she's going into this situation. Um, and then very specifically, Buffalo Bill using the night vision is uh, it totally clicked in for me is a man looking at Clarice again and she's yeah. she's she's in a situation where she's just struggling to get through and you know you know is at a disadvantage and all of these things and it's just it's like we're seeing from a man's a man's point of view um, what Clarice is going through. And I just thought that was so interesting. We're seeing her panic for the first time. Yeah. We never see her, like, we yeah. have a, we see her vulnerable. We see her crying about her dad, you know, like dealing with the grief of her father being dredged up, all this stuff. But we never see her terrified until that moment. And then it's a really uncomfortably long sequence of, as soon as the lights go out, watching her shake and tremble and grapple, you know, try and like drag herself along the walls. And suddenly she's hunted and um, like that is viscerally uncomfortable to watch. And and you're really <laughs> starting to wonder like, this is dragging on quite a while is this is and, yeah. and, and what usually happens, you know, it's, uh, we can talk about horror and the final girl premise because it basically drops mm -hmm. into that in a way. And in that case, from that perspective, okay, Clarice is going to survive, but from the crime thriller side of things this looks like what happens right before one of the victims gets killed yeah i love that i uh I, two things to respond to what you guys just said um the the red scene i i love that scene uh for two reasons um one was it backed up my descending into hell theory from the book um mm. when she's going mm -hmm. to meet hannibal and i thought this was very like we are crossing into hell now and we're going through the red I was thinking about the fact that you mentioned that a lot while we were watching yeah. this, and I kept I kept thinking of more uh, yeah. descending into hell moments that I feel like draw mm -hmm. parallels to that. 
And then uh, I also think it's a really narratively important moment because that's the only time we hear about Hannibal committing a crime against a woman and this nurse that, that he attacked. True. And I think I think it's important that we get that. Otherwise, you might think that she would be spared Hannibal Lecter because she is a woman. But that immediately tells you, no, she is in danger, too. Well, and I, that actually, you know, again, I have two things to respond to that because um, <laughs> we have so <laughs> many branching thoughts here. But um, I found it really interesting on a rewatch while there's sexual violence in the sense that Buffalo Bill is targeting women to torture and murder and skin he doesn't rape them and we actually don't see that particular kind of violence at all in the movie which i think is a really interesting migs Migs Migs, aside from migs but like we don't it's not in buffalo bill's background it's not in hannibal's background and it's something that is almost you know taken for granted in a lot of serial killer cases and true crime stuff and horror even um and i and i i'm interested to know what you guys think about why because i I think that's also true of the book although it's been much longer since i read the book and why like do you think it was a conscious decision because i do because i think that it it allows you know it's more in a weird way it's more welcoming to women readers and viewers and stuff if you take that out it's it's Absolutely. like it's like when you're playing horror mm-hmm. tabletop games um there's a concept called the x card where if something comes yeah. up that people don't want to explore during the game you tap it no questions asked you move on and a lot of times um that or pre-game negotiations are used to just sort of remove that real world very um familiar horror so that it's mm-hmm. actually still enjoyable to everybody at the table um mm-hmm. i wonder if it's that or if it's something else I mean, I absolutely think that that's part of it. I, I think uh, whether it's Thomas Harris or Jonathan Demi or both, um, this feels like a story that's attempting to be pretty feminist. And and um, I think you would lose a lot of that audience, like you said, if the killer was you know perpetrating sexual violence. And it would undercut that message. Um, it's really trying to show uh, Clarice um, struggling in a man's world, quote unquote, at the FBI and the difficulty. And, and, you know, I love part of the reason why I love some of the training sequences is not only showing how difficult it is to be an FBI agent and the kind of training they have to go through, but also the added layer of difficulty that she's dealing with at all times. It keeps getting reinforced with, with the, the way the men treat her. So yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it had to be intentional. Um, you know, I, I think if, if I was to level criticism at this, movie for anything it would be that it it feels pretty transphobic even though it tries to distance mm-hmm. itself from that um i just I, it's impossible to have a character like buffalo bill be the way that they are without coming off as transphobic yeah um so uh, other than that you know and that's that's my one main gripe um I, I really feel like this is a pretty progressive uh you know story in a genre that is not always like that yeah oh we get that with Catherine martin too the first time we see her she's not just rushing to help this hapless guy in her parking lot she stands there for a moment going what the hell is this dude doing in my parking lot do i want to deal with this right now i just got back from grocery Mm -hmm. shopping my cat's waiting for me um which you know was a really recognizable and human moment of you you can see her weighing it and every step of the way she's like okay this is getting weird my alarm bells are ringing spidey sense is going off but at the same time here's this guy and he needs help 
which is yeah. exactly you know that that's you know the very obvious Bundy pool of uh exactly of details. Yeah. But as someone who who also uh, consumes a bit of true crime uh, media out there, I definitely recognize that this was like an exact ploy that Bundy would pull. Yeah, and they, they you know they definitely lifted that. Um, oh, so the other thing I wanted to respond to was the um, sort of setup and payoffs in this movie mm-hmm. um, that that I I picked up on. You guys talked about the guards, but um, I was thinking about the wing motif and how we get it with the moss. But then I was also noticing it with the death of the guard um, and the mm-hmm. way that he gets strung up later by Hannibal having the wings and be sort of angelic. And then, um, which maybe is you could say is like as Hannibal actually as an homage to James Gum in some way. Um, and then you also see it with even the scene, the you know the infamous tuck scene. Um, I was thinking about the way he sort of is holding out his clothing, almost like wings, um, and when he's kind of doing that dance, um, and how even that is sort of moth-like, and how is this kind of recurring visual motif that I thought was really cool. There's um right at the end, there's that long, or right not at the end, right after James Gum has been killed, there's that long shot of that spinning paper thing with the two butterflies and the yeah. one butterfly, and the two butterflies and the one butterfly. And, like, my brain is always known, like, oh, that's symbolic of something. And I think I finally figured it out <laughs> that it's, you know, we've had both Clarice. Clarice is clearly going through a transformation. And James Gum is trying to go through a transformation. And only one of them mm-hmm. comes out having actually been transformed and the other one's dead. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, like their that. transformations are, are only tentatively linked to each other, but they do collide at that last moment. And Clarice definitely comes out changed for it. Yeah, I think the the whole movie really just is filled with motifs of of transformation. Whether it's like, you know, Hannibal using whatever he gets from from uh, Clarice, and maybe you know eventually, because you have to think like Clarice, whether she you know she wasn't directly the reason why he escaped, but she had like sort of a a glancing re uh, <laughs> glancing sort of effect on it because it had she had he never mm-hmm. opened up in any way, he never would have been moved. And and that sort of you know that led him to Memphis or I believe that's where it was Tennessee. Um, it, it's just interesting to think of like every character in the story transforming in some way. Uh, I guess, or at least Buffalo Bill and Clarice and and Hannibal. There's there's a line and I didn't write down the full line because I assumed I would remember it and of course I don't. But there's a moment where Lecter is explaining something and he says I can't remember if he says you know student or whatever first, but then he glosses it as pupil like he redefined he he restates it using the word pupil and it Mm. sounds kind of clunky and weird because yes we know what a student is or whatever it wasn't that hard of a word that he was defining but then if you go pupil to pupa to the transformative imagery pretty sure it was intentional wordplay (laughs) yeah um just you know i mean especially because he is in a large way shepherding clarice through a rebirth and Mm -hmm. recontextualization of everything that she's gone through and everything she's learned up until this point to create this new creature, right. which, and then if you read Hannibal, there's definitely a, a thing of, of creating Clarice and sculpting mm-hmm. her and doing weird stuff. Well, and, and you, you reminded me of something that I meant to bring up last episode, but I forgot. Um, and that is, I, I feel like uh, Hannibal and Crawford both represent um, these sort of surrogate father figures for her in some ways, even though you talked about it being sort of a, a romantic relationship at times or feeling just very intimate. But there's also very much a mentor-mentee sort of relationship oh, yeah. going on on both sides. And, uh, you know, I, and then I think it's pointed that it's her father who died mm-hmm. when she was young. Yep. And so there's sort of this this absence of a father figure. So I mean, there's just so much going on in this movie. Like, I love that they packed so much into this two-hour runtime 
Um, it's pretty incredible. If you or, or the listeners want to know just how um, complex and convoluted the familial projections get, definitely read Hannibal because he uh, <laughs> he elaborates on the theme in some very unique ways. Okay. <laughs> I don't remember that movie hardly at all, by the way. I have seen it, but it was a long time ago. The book, and only the book is um, the book and the movie have slightly different endings. Um, the book's ending okay. is it was formative, and I'm not sure it was formative in a good way for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I don't want to spoil it because you know if you're gonna go in, you should yes. go in not prepared yeah, for that. And we we've already talked about how we need to cover red dragon apparently because james hasn't even seen it yeah i have um, no clue. i think yeah. that's my second favorite uh hannibal movie so would you watch I, red I'd dragon or would that. you draw or would you watch manhunter because they're both based off so of... yeah i think we would watch both i think we would cover red dragon for the podcast because i think it's probably the more well-known film yeah. um but we would definitely cover manhunter for probably a bonus episode or something uh, but yeah i definitely i've heard that and i'm curious about it um, I think I called it Mindhunter last week. It's like a slip of the tongue. Um, just because <laughs> yeah, I've been watching Mind... All right, you know, I, I like Mindhunter, but it's, it is Manhunter. And so g- thank you for giving me an opportunity to correct that because I said that wrong last week. Um, but yeah, that, that is weird too. It's interesting because it's a different actor playing Hannibal and you really realize how used to imagining him as Anthony Hopkins you are at that point. Yeah. Well, and that, that's the same problem I have. Like the Hannibal show, it takes a while to get used to Mads Mikkelsen as, as Hannibal. I like Mads. Although I think he does a good job he in does. his own right. It just takes a little bit. It takes a little bit. It's a little it, weird. It was hard for the Hannibal movie. I'm sorry, I'm dragging you guys off topic again. But the Hannibal movie, going to Julianne Moore instead of oh yeah Jodie Foster, Jody was, Foster. That was an adjustment for sure. Oh, I'm and sure. I, I I have saying Jodie Foster's name reminded me. I really wanted to shout out how much I think she does incredible work in this movie. Um, I think she gets often like kind of forgotten when everyone's talking about Anthony Hopkins, who is re- incredible. But uh, I really thought she did great work. I, I know I think she gets a heart. Uh, uh, um, she gets some shit for her southern accent at times. I don't have the best ear for that, even though I grew up around some southern accents. Um, it seemed okay to me. Um, but th- there's so much more going on with her performance than just the accent. Like she does, mm-hmm. she does really good work in this movie. I mean, she like. First of all, she she won an Oscar for for best actress, which I think deservingly so. Uh, she's okay. incredible in this movie. Good. She she goes she she comes up to Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter, who is built to be a scene stealer, and and yep. contends with him, and I think p- turns in just as good of a performance. Uh, I guess to talk about that real quick, this movie actually did basically sweep, which has only been done three times. Uh, it won best actor, actress, director, picture, and best screenplay. Um, wow. So, I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. It was the 1991 Oscars, I believe. And the only two mm-hmm. other movies to ever do it were It Happened One Night in 1934 and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975. Oh, cool. Hey, a potential project. Yeah, I would like to do that at some point. Yeah, so, I mean, to just to talk about the performances, it's it's like clearly this movie was really well received. And uh, mm-hmm. Jodie Foster, shout out to her because she killed it. Um, did you guys want to move into some more some more plot real quick so we can yeah move? let's get some more plot so buffalo bill abducts a senator's daughter Catherine martin crawford authorizes starling to offer lector a fake deal promising a prison transfer if he provides information that helps them find buffalo bill and rescue Catherine. instead lector demands a quid pro quo from starling offering clues about bill in exchange for personal information starling tells lector about the murder of her father when she was a child Chilton secretly records the conversation and reveals Starling's deceit before offering Lecter a deal of Chilton's own making. 
Lecter agrees and is flown to Memphis, where he verbally torments Senator Martin and gives her misleading information on Buffalo Bill, including the name Lewis Friend. Starling notices that Lewis Friend is an anagram for iron sulfide, fool's gold. She visits Lecter, who is now being held in a cage-like cell in a Tennessee courthouse, and asks for the truth. Lecter tells her that all the information she needs is contained in the case file. Rather than give her the real name, he insists that they continue their quid pro quo, and she recounts a traumatic childhood incident where she was awakened by the sound of lambs being slaughtered. Starling admits that she still sometimes wakes, thinking she can hear the lambs screaming, and Lecter speculates that she is motivated to save Catherine in the hope that this will end the nightmares. Lecter gives her back the case file on Buffalo Bill after their conversation is interrupted by Chilton, who escorts her away. Lecter kills his guards, escapes from his cell, and disappears. At this point, like right when this conversation was, right when Clarice and Hannibal's interaction here was starting, I was still going, wow, I still don't find this interaction as compelling as I did when I was younger. I wonder, like, is the magic gone for me? Do I just know too much (laughs) and not trust anybody? And, Mm -hmm. And then... When she's being dragged away from him and suddenly it's mm-hmm. them against the world. And then of course there's the finger touch to cement it. There's the very nice little <laughs> yeah. zoom in of the, the gentle sexual finger stroke, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, to, to preteen teenage Caitlin was just catnip because, Ooh, um, <laughs> but it, it was really interesting because yeah, up until that point, as intimate as they are, they're adversarial. And then just mm-hmm. for one moment, they're not. And I think that that's crucial to why this movie stuck with people and why, you know, Clarice and Hannibal became such iconic figures is because, you know, as much as Hannibal is manipulative and trying to set Clarice off and trying to take her measure and all of this, there's this very real sense of not empathy, like you said, like you can, you can read it as empathy, but, but maybe not, but there's this definite um it matters mm-hmm. it matters to both of them yeah. it's intimate and it matters to both of them whether that's a good thing or not and whether it's a positive you know interaction for them or not which i don't think it is for clarice <laughs> um i have a lot of thoughts about um you know both because of of writing the luminous dead and being on some panels about why we find villains so attractive that it's often mm. not only um, a mirroring of the protagonist, but also this this protracted intimacy where the villain understands something fundamental about the main character that no one else sees and no one else gets. Mm. And in Clarice's case, it's he actually sees her real vulnerability, not the vulnerability that everyone else just assumes because she's, because she's a woman, because she's weak, because whatever. He drills down to the point where they get into some very heavy, very, you know, grief-filled stuff. And I'm still grappling with why he keeps going to, so did your did your dad molest you? Did your did the far rancher molest you? Who molested you? Mm-hmm. But I almost think that it's a challenge to her of mm-hmm. this is the easy answer, and I know it's not the easy answer. What is it? I I also wonder if it's you know he I think he respects how how quickly she gets to the point sometimes. And so in in those moments when he when he does that, it's almost like trying to see if she'll falter at the at like the most grotesque thing he could say. Um, And it's yeah, he's testing. And I think in terms of their this attraction, I, I think because we're so close to Clarice's point of view, we're basically in her point of view. 
when we can tell that Hannibal cares for her in some way, which I think you, I think, I don't know, maybe Hannibal has me tricked as well, but I think that he cares for, for Clarice in some way. And I think because of that, we sort of start to, you know, we hear about all the awful things he's done and we start to sort of start to push that to the side. And this is, you know, pre him breaking out, obviously. So as, as you know, he gives over the, the, the notes or the, the, file for the last time and they touch fingers and everything that's like the 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 peak moment of us being able to be like maybe maybe this guy isn't so bad after all and then and then and then does the most most horrific thing that he could possibly do he becomes suddenly um much more elegant and predatory than we've seen him be before just the way that anthony hopkins is standing the way that his shirt Mm -hmm. is incredibly tight (laughs) um but also just the, (laughs) the, the very visceral way that he attacks people it's not an like i say that he's very elegant and predatory but his attacks are vicious but he's also going with the with the music with the time of the music with his with when he gets the nightstick that was a choice by the way the white was a choice by anthony hopkins apparently he uh has a fear of dentists and doctors and things like that and he felt that other people might feel that as well so he he went with sort of the all white it it does look like a dentist (laughs) It does, right? And and not only does the blood look even crazier on a white shirt, yeah. but uh, I think it was a cool choice for sure. I, I I so I've been thinking about what you were talking about with the why does he go to that? And um, yeah, I think he could be testing her a little bit, but I I think he also is sort of like he's getting that one out of the way because I think that that's probably like the most common thing he probably heard in his practice as yeah. a psychologist. So he's like getting that one out of the way. He's like, if it's that, I'm just going to say it so that you're not going to like dance around it. I'm aware that this goes on. I'm going to put it out there. And then, you know, he's like hoping it's not that, but he just wants to like get it out there. And then also like anything she comes in with now isn't going to seem quite as bad because he's already said that thing. Yeah. That is like one of the worst things you could do. So I don't know. I guess that's why I think he's probably doing it. Because to me, because to me, it just didn't feel far enough away from Migs. And the stupid cum scene, like, right. well, and she if, says like that's something Migs would say at one point. Yeah, too, he does, right? and he right. sh- he stops, he turns immediately, he drops the line of questioning, yeah. and turns, which I thought was a really great choice. But I also was like sitting there going, okay, why do you keep bringing it up if this mm-hmm. kind of rudeness bothers you? But I think you're yeah. right that it's and it's well, in his perspective, it would make her more interesting if that was if if it wasn't sexual abuse. Yeah, he wants to get that away. Like, straight off, let's get that out of the way so that we can find out what's more interesting than that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to mention a choice that was made by the director here. Uh, I think it would have been very easy when when Starling was was giving the sort of her monologue about why she has she you know hears the screaming of the of the lambs and all of this. I think that it could have been very easy to to cut away to a you know some sort of flashback or something like that to and have mm-hmm. her narrate over top of it. And uh, I actually found something in my research. I while watching, I was like, "Wow! Like this, I, I totally could have seen somebody cutting away." But how powerful is this? Just to see the raw emotion and really let these performances speak for themselves. But in my in my research, I found something that backed it up a little bit. Uh, the filmmakers were were prepared to go to Montana to shoot a flashback sequence depicting Clarice's runaway attempt. After filming the dialogue between Jodie Foster and Sir Anthony Hopkins, Jonathan Demi realized it would be pointless to cut away from their performances and announced, "I guess we aren't going to Montana." <laughs> nice. <laughs> there did, you go. <laughs> did you um take a look at everything that's on like the table in his in his little pen? Because of course you have the painting that it li- or the the charcoal drawing that it lingers on of of mm-hmm. Clarice as Madonna with lamb. 
but he also has a Bon Appetit magazine. I did. Who gave him that? Who gave him that? Like in world, who was like, you know, whoever allowed him to demand a second dinner, apparently, (laughs) of rare lamb. Yeah. And what what's crazy to me is like, I guess they're not really keeping track of all the things that he has because she brings him that roll of of all of the all of the drawings and everything, and then they you know they move them around and stuff and don't think anything of it. It's like how easily could someone have slipped a weapon in there or something? And and anyway, yeah, I just think it's well, interesting. Or a pen. <laughs> oh, he got the pen from Chilton though. Chilton's a sex pen that he likes to fill yeah. around with his mouth with. Which like who, how how did he get that? Who knows? But magic. <laughs> yep. Uh, the cell. I wanted to talk about how it looks visually. And like I know it's not yeah. necessarily practical, but it is in the book. But to have like a cell that they erect in the middle of like a gymnasium or whatever that is, yeah, uh, and the yeah. light that they're able to shoot through it, and the way that it's like a courthouse or something, it's very grand, yeah, whatever it is, yeah, it's definitely monumental architecture. And then the way that it kind of juxtaposes what we get early on, where they're they're only separated by glass, so it seems like there's nothing separating them in the, in some of their first meetings. And speaking of Starling and, and Hannibal, and then here it's literally like cages, and in, in all of the shots, there's actual bars separating them. And as we like dolly across, you can see like it, it just creates a, a different and interesting effect. But you know, this is the scene where we get the breakout and everything happens. The face, the face cutting, wearing the face. Uh, what do we think of the change of adding the the sort of angelic? symbolism what what does that mean there do you think that it's it's him being sort of performative or or is there something the filmmaker was trying to say what do you guys think of that it fits with um hannibal giving them what they want they want a monster here's a monster if they want something larger than life here he's he's giving you something larger than life and so it plays to their assumptions about him but it's also very distracting it mm-hmm. pulls <laughs> the focus yeah. off of because i don't think if you actually skinned a guy's face, would it really be convincing lying on top of your face with your nose underneath it? So, I mean, in the movie, of course, it's yeah. shot so it looks nice and convincing. But yeah. I feel like you definitely do need the shock and awe to really yeah. sell that they may have actually missed that this is this is Lecter on the ground. I like that. I, uh, you Very, very reasonable explanations. I also like the, the idea of it being sort of an homage to James Gum. Like he is, he is fully aware that this crime has been going on, and the transformation is on his mm, mind. The mm-hmm. moth is on his mind, and he's talked about the chrysalis and talked about the butterfly. And now, when he has his chance, this is what he represents. Um, I always thought of it more of as an angel, but now, now I think of it more as a butterfly uh, to line up with that. Um, great scene. I mean, and I want to back up a little bit before we move past it. I mentioned it early on, um, but I feel like it's one of the biggest moments. In this movie, and that's when he is brought to the hangar, and he's got the mask on, and he's in the straight jacket, and there's a million people standing around, he's brought before the senator. And I was thinking about how it's rare, but every now and then we get to cover a project where we see something, and I think, like, if you were going to do a highlight of some of the best movie moments of all time, and you were just going to do it in, like, five minutes, like, some of these scenes that might be in there, and I feel like this is one of them. You know what I mean? Like, this is an iconic moment. Everyone recognizes. You can just see it for a second and get it. Um, it's, it's so formative in Anthony Hopkins career, I think, um, just incredible and a powerful, powerful scene and, you know, iconic. And I feel like we take it for granted. That's the other thing I was thinking. I'm like, oh, it's like, oh yeah, it's this scene. And I'm like, no, this scene's really incredible. I don't know. Just shout out to the, to the costume design that came up with that. Yeah. My yeah. only notes on that are, are Lecter shut up about boobs, toughened your nipples, WTF. <laughs> Yeah, but he. I might note that he really likes to push people away and then yank them back, and then push them away again, and then yank them back again. 
Yeah. yeah. But mostly I was upset about the the nipple thing. Well, and he, it's like one of the worst things he you, he could say to her as a mother, I think, is, mm-hmm. is what he's trying to say. Like he's 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 just twisting the knife. And we got some insight of that in the book where it talks about him. He's compared to this moth who drinks tears. And so I think that this is a moment of him like savoring because I think he even has this thought where he says like, oh, that's enough after she she reacts to it. <laughs> so like he's like getting he's getting something out of it. Like he loves it. Um, and then I think that that made it on the screen, I think, in this scene for me. <laughs> It, it made more sense after reading it. I find that scene to be extremely iconic as well. And, you know, every I think that 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 costuming is why it's, you know, that's why it's a Halloween costume. That that is the costume, yeah. right? Like if you have like a dummy, you put that costume on it. People are like, holy shit, Hannibal Lecter's here. Um, yep. But for some reason, I think I, I per, there's so many other scenes in this movie that I prefer, like like him behind glass and the way that he's yep. looking and stuff. Um, it, even the scene that we were just talking about in the cage. It's just interesting that yeah. that's the scene that became the the defining scene because as as power I think it is a good scene because he's completely chained down power of cosplay like you said <laughs> yeah and it's like he's got he's got the crazy eyes and he's able to do a lot with his eyebrows but it to me like so many other scenes really really stood out and maybe it's just like I'm taking and it for pull, granted pulling the face off yeah that moment happened so fast but man that yeah he ripping another man's face off and he's and he's so covered in blood like. Man, oh, how about that mustache before we move past it? There's a fucking mustache in this movie that oh, I yeah. feel like I have to point out. <laughs> it comes way out. Yeah, I don't even know what <laughs> you call crazy. that one. It comes Wait, all the way not, to like the cheek. I did not bones. notice the mustache. Whose mustache? You didn't notice oh, the up, mustache? But it didn't stick. It goes straight across his cheeks. It's amazing. One of the uh, one of the guards, the a main guard actually, his his mustache goes basically all the way to like the back of his chin. Oh like, yeah, it comes, like, yeah, no, that's impressive. Um, did, in, in like a lot, li- a little line. Speaking <laughs> of hair, though, Hannibal Lecter's very extensive comb back mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you only really get to see when he's in the cage because you get those overhead shots. But it's like it's long. He's got a lot of long hair that he's combed back yeah. over his bald spot. <laughs> Yeah. That I was not prepared yeah, for. I was like, oh, that's some a hair loss for sure. That's a look. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just having seen Mads Mikkelsen be him. It's now like, I don't think Hannibal would be that weird about his <laughs> over. Very, very different animal for sure. But good. Good one. All right. Let me get into some more some more plot here. Starling analyzes Lecter's annotations to the case files and realizes that Buffalo Bill knew his first victim. Starling travels to the victim's hometown and discovers that Buffalo Bill was a tailor from a dress she sees that was having alterations done. She calls Crawford to inform him that Buffalo Bill is trying to create a woman's suit out of real skin, but Crawford is already en route to make an arrest having cross-referenced Lecter's notes with hospital archives. Starling interviews friends of the victim in Ohio, while Crawford leads an FBI team to the suspect's address in Illinois. The house in Illinois is empty, and Starling is led to the house of Jack Gordon, whom she actually, whom she realizes is actually Buffalo Bill, after finding him off. She pursues him into the multi-room basement, where she discovers that Catherine is still alive. After turning off the basement lights, Gum stalks Starling in, in the dark with night vision goggles, but gives his position away when he cocks his revolver. Starling reacts just in time and fires off all of her rounds, killing Gum. Later at the FBI Academy graduation party, Starling receives a phone call from Lecter, who is at an airport in Bimini. He assures her that he does not plan to pursue her and asks her to return the favor, which she says she cannot do. Lecter then hangs up the phone, saying that he is having an old friend for dinner and starts following a newly arrived Chilton before disappearing into the crowd. So we should probably talk about a little bit about Buffalo Bill, since he is the ostensible actual plot of the movie and yeah, i feel like yeah. we haven't talked about him much um 
<laughs> and but I think that's that's partially because he really doesn't come into focus until after Hannibal is out, which is probably yeah. why the the sort of dual narrative works so well is that we're not asked to juggle too much of both at one time. But there are just a lot of little details about him that I find fascinating, like all the uh, photos with him of him with strippers that we see yeah. through Clarice's thing, which apparently was a a move to prove that he wasn't just a weird evil gay man, which I don't really think helped. <laughs> um, he also has a swastika quilt, mm-hmm. which I only noticed for the first time. Yeah, yeah. I there's several white supremacy swastika thing. There's another swastika thing later. Yeah, and I felt like that was some of the most accurate stuff for the for this uh, this sort of killer. <laughs> yeah, um, often drawn to white supremacy, as we know. But do we want to talk you, about um, true crime at all? Catherine Martin <laughs> and just how intense and ballsy she is for being, you know, the victim in the well. You know, nice inverted tower s- symbolism stuff. But the, her trick with the bucket to try and get the dog to get Precious, who I keep wanting to call Bleep because there's this serial killer named Dennis Nielsen who had a dog and his dog was named Bleep. It was another small little dog. Um, (laughs) But Precious, you know, the whole don't you hurt my dog, don't don't you make me hurt your dog exchange is, I, it's, it's extremely powerful and kind of unexpected. How would that have gone if if uh, Clarice hadn't interacted with it and like interrupted it? You know, I don't think it would have necessarily gone well for her. But oh, probably. Not. I don't know. Like you said, she's quite she's quite capable. Um, she definitely was gonna go out swinging. You know what I mean? Like she wasn't just gonna take it. You know, and and you know, props to her for that. It was it was cool. It was a smart move. Um, yeah, I like to see her sort of trying to rescue herself, which I think is an important uh, characteristic for someone like her. Yeah, I mean, I'm just comparing it with. Um serial killer movie that I happened to watch recently and that also Amazon Prime suggested I watch when I paused Silence of the Lambs at one point last night, which is um, <laughs> okay. the, the Jennifer Lopez movie, The Cell, which, oh, it's, that's a fascinating one. Um, I don't think I've seen that since I was like 12 or something. I barely remember. I think I saw it in the theater, though, when it came, whenever it came out. Fan, it's, it's bizarre and phantasmagoric and, and in some ways amazing and in some ways kind of cheesy. But um, in okay. that, they're also trying to track down a woman who's been kidnapped by a serial killer who they have, they found previous bodies from. And so they know they have a ticking clock that they have three or four days to find her. And to compare, like we never, you see her in this room that just, you know, periodically keeps filling with water because it's eventually going to drown her. It's this very, you know, Rube Goldberg esque thing. Um, You know, she, she does some sort of token trying to escape stuff, but nothing is um, nothing that feels as real as how Catherine is depicted of being, you know, she's not being, she's not trying to be nice. She's trying to fight, Um, which, you know, I just, I really appreciated it for, you know, since we, since we were kind of shoved into this crime thriller narrative for the last quarter or so of it, that it wasn't just around damsel in distress. We have not only Clarice, but we have Catherine uh, throwing roadblocks in the way. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that she sees the when she sees the nails, I think that's a turning point for her. And it's a great horrific scene when she sees the blood and the nails, but I think she realizes like unless I do something, I'm not getting out of this alive. Yeah. And and I think that's when she she after you know she's terrified, but then afterwards she she starts forming this plan. So I we talked about it a little bit, but uh and we also mentioned it in the book episode, but I feel like we should again bring up the depiction of 
seemingly, at least in Hannibal's words, Buffalo Bill is not someone who's trans. And, and there are like images that are that are meant to, like you said, the photos with, with strippers that are sort of meant to say like, um, you know, he's also not homosexual, but we're not sure. Like we're like, where, where I guess my question is, where do you guys land with like how this holds up today? Like, does, does this seem like they, they did their best? Does it seem like something that they didn't do enough? The thing that um puts me in the I'm not happy with it camp is, you know, that mm-hmm. that gratuitous lingering shot of him playing with his nipple ring. That to me is just look, look at this shorthand for depraved queer person. And even though we've said mm-hmm. that he's not really trans, even though we've said this is about hatred of women and hatred of himself and it's all it's the there are certain choices that the filmmakers made that a don't hold up and b i don't think we're good at the time either i know there was there was um some backlash at the time it came out as well um and you know there's there's interesting um conversations this actually comes up with a couple real life serial killers where there's some discussion of, well, do we think Ed Gein might've been trans or do we think it was this weird religious hatred of women thing that his mother inculcated in him? Uh, there's a serial killer named Haddon Clark, who I was convinced was part of the background, you know, how they came up with Buffalo Bill until I realized he was arrested in 92. So that's not right. Um, but he, you know, ev- all the coverage of him was, and he was wearing women's panties. You know, and it's just right. all this stuff that's that's it's a mainstay of the true crime true crime genre, but it's it just doesn't work for me, and it never has. It doesn't, mm-hmm. and 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 especially when it goes yeah. into the sort of the the nipple ring or the women's panties in the in the um, voiceover voice, it's just mm-hmm. there to shock. Yeah, it's like, like I said, it's kind of unfortunate because I feel like this movie means well in so many ways, and then it gets something pretty bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and yeah i read about there being there being a backlash to this being some protests things like that um and a lot of it is in the source material so i don't know how much of it we want to lay on on demi's feet or not um it's interesting that he would go on to make philadelphia two years later um now that's not a movie i've seen (laughs) but i I am aware of what it's about Mm -hmm. i don't know if you two have seen it um but i feel like it's a really important movie um about you know the aids uh, you know epidemic so um, I don't know. It's just interesting that the same filmmaker, you know, made both of these. And uh, I don't know, was he atoning for anything there? <laughs> Tough to say. So something that I that I was thinking about during this viewing, too, is that, you know, and, you know, I'm not super well informed enough to, to really know where, again, where I land on this stuff. But Buffalo Bill coveted women's bodies and wanted that, right? And yet there's this moment of like celebration of his of his own body where he's like dancing the fam- the tuck scene. W- do you think that that was just inconsistency with the character or was there something being done there? Because because I just didn't really know what to make of it because I felt because it seemed like a confident moment. But for someone who didn't necessarily, you know, identify with their body in that way, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, given that um, the only piece of his woman's suit that he's wearing is the scalp, which is interesting because A, he has nice long hair of his own and B, they make wigs. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was it was an interesting pairing to have that be the only grotesque, obviously grotesque thing. And then, yeah, the rest of it is he's wearing this really nice robe and dancing around to some great music and... Yeah, Seaman have a great time. Song is awesome, by the way. 
it's a good I found song. that song on Spotify later, and I was like, this song's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I have to actually point out a moment. Um, I was watching that. I was watching it earlier today. I watched this movie today, and uh, my wife walked by. She'd walked by several times throughout the movie, and she'd always kind of glance over and see what was going on, and then like continue on to the kitchen or wherever she was going. I had my headphones, and she couldn't hear it. Um, and she walked by and glanced over right during the tuck scene, and she had this moment. And I was like, it's just perfect timing. What a scene to walk over and glance at. Uh, I love it. I, I think she's only seen the movie like once ever and and had probably forgotten that scene or, or was hoping to forget it. It's pretty <laughs> funny. Here at the end, um, I want to touch on another thing that I feel like comes back, and that is you talked about it a little bit with the checking her six, but also shooting Jane Gum, I felt like had a mirror towards the start of the of the film where she gets at- attacked by Miggs, breaks down a little bit. We see her crying by her car. And then the next scene, she's blasting in the firing range. And uh, here we see her struggling, like you said, panicking in fear under his gaze. And then he clicks, and then she turns, and she fires off a bunch of rounds into this guy, killing him. And I felt like that was a moment that was set up. Like, I, I was starting to see all these, like, you know, setups and payoffs in this film. Um, again, just structurally, really pretty impressive. And um, just a tight story. I don't know. I, I was really impressed with it. So in terms of of Clarice, uh, Jodie Foster apparently worked really closely with the FBI. Um, okay. And so specifically one agent named Mary Ann Kraus. Uh, and apparently, you know, they spent a lot of time together. And Kraus gave Foster the idea of Starling standing by the car and crying. And she said, Kraus told Foster that at times the work just becomes so overwhelming that it was a good way to get an emotional release. But, you know, you mentioned that scene where she's crying by her car. And I thought that I, there's a couple of moments where we see that Clarice clearly is like in a, in a man's world, tr- having to be extremely tough. And then, you know, ha- still being a human character and being somebody that we empathize with, we get this scene of her crying, which clearly I think almost anyone would after what she went through there. Not not even just Hannibal, but also like the semen situation that went down. Yeah. Um, and then we and then. uh <laughs> And then we also see the most vulnerable parts of of Clarice when she's with Hannibal and she's completely spilling everything in a movie where otherwise she's completely stonewalling everyone and she's extremely tough and doesn't show any of that vulnerability. Um, So, yeah, I I just thought that the idea to cry by the car, I feel like people might look at and say like, oh, she's crying because she was, you know, all this stuff and she can't handle it and she's a woman. But that's not how I read it at all. It was it was much more that like we're getting we're getting all sides of a character we're getting we're getting what realistically would happen in a situation like this um and i thought it was interesting that it also came from from someone who's dealt with this kind of thing in real life yeah and there's also um and now the way i read that scene on this watch was not so much the thing with Migs causing it but the fact that right before that hannibal had been making assumptions about who her father was Mm-hmm. because then she goes out and she's crying and she's thinking about who her father actually was and it might just be that i'm obsessed with writing about grief and about people not really being able to process grief of losing a parent young until they're older for various reasons um but you know yeah that thing with makes may, may have been the tipping point that you know right. it was just like okay screw this but i i think it's important that she thinks about her dad then, and she's not thinking about her dad then just because she's feeling overwhelmed and alone and everything else. She's thinking about her dad because Hannibal made her think about her dad. And mm-hmm. she doesn't counter anything he says 
during that session. It's it's not until later that she explains that he was a cop. She keeps yeah. that to herself. Mm. She goes out. She processes it. I like that. So let's circle back, back around to the fatherhood thing, because my, my proposal that Crawford sort of represents a little bit of a father, father figure for her, as well as Hannibal, um, I think that comes from full circle in the final scene here, where he is sort of standing in the back of the room, and he gives a little clap, and then he checks his watch and has to go, and he she sort of gets this... Um, like, you know, approval from this father figure. Um, we talked about in the book how we weren't very fond of the the different note that the book ends on, and that's where she ends up sleeping with and going and starting a relationship with one of the bug guys. And that's kind of how she, like, she's happy that she's with this guy at the end. Um, and we just felt like that didn't mm -hmm. seem to work as well for the character. Um, so I like this better, but it's still her, like, earning the approval of a man which still feels a little off for me for the character who is so independent and, and finding her own way. So how do you feel about that, Caitlin? So Clarice, like, in general, both in the movie, in the book, in Hannibal, the movie in the book, she's always this contradiction that I think comes from Thomas Harris wanting it both ways. Because Clarice as a character is designed to be manipulated by Hannibal. And when you have that role, everything else you pile on top of it can get wiped away. And so I think the way that he, he tried to work with that and keep the balance is that their interactions are very complex and they're very back and forth. And some of that breaks down in Hannibal. Again, that's not what this podcast is about. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when you the, the thing is, is that the movie puts such a lens on how men treat Clarice that it's in the forefront of your mind, which is a great thing, except then, yeah, her only female contact, the only only women in the movie, there's Catherine, who just yells at Clarice very understandably when she doesn't understand what Clarice is yeah. trying to do to free her. The senator- I love that she calls her a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> you fucking bitch. I, it's such a great moment because it's so unexpected. That she but very human. Um, but then the senator and then <laughs> yeah, very. Clarice's roommate, who is apparently brilliant yeah. and who Clarice trusts enough to literally give yeah. like direct quotes of what Hannibal said because her roommate yeah. quotes it back to her later. When we never see them have that original yeah, conversation. She, she's a bigger character in the book. Yeah, um, I thought I remembered that, but wasn't sure. But it's, yeah, it's but it's a interesting. Her her final thing with Crawford, um, the thing that stood out to me was not so much the standing in the back of the room and checking his watch. He comes up afterwards and he shakes her hand, and it's the most professional interaction she has had with a man in that entire movie. It's the only time someone's treated her professionally. Yeah, it, 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 you get that zoom in of the handshake and it is uh, again sort of a mirror image to what happens with with Hannibal and the finger stroke. Mm -hmm. yeah but yes yeah. so but in in terms of you know does it work I, I think it's a mess um <laughs> I think parts of it work <laughs> I think parts of it work better have worked better for me at different points in my life which is yeah which is actually fairly indicative of it being a nice complex character instead of character relationships that it that it does have all these different facets but I do think that it's undermined especially by the fact that there aren't many women in Clarice's world. And while I understand what they, what both Thomas Harris and the director were trying to do, it also undermines, it, it makes the, oh, I'm not like other girls thing. The, the general problem yeah. that we run into with fiction too. Of, yeah, for sure. You know, that Clarice isn't like other women and she's alone in a man's world and all the stuff, but it's, you know, she, she likes shooting guns and doing fun man stuff. Right. And yeah. you know, there's, there's a story to be told <laughs> there of, you know, that can be true. And the question is, did she choose to not have female relationships aside from her roommate? Are we just not being shown them? There's a whole lot there that you could explore. Yeah. But this, again, you yeah. know, 
it's a tight little movie. There's not a lot of room for it. I'm not sure where you'd right. put it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like it's kind of a cop out, but I mean, this movie came out 30 years ago. I feel like it it worked a little better 30 years ago. But, you know, today, I don't, yeah, I think today it doesn't quite hold up in that way. But at the time, it was probably actually, you know, pretty forward thinking. And it was probably shocking to some people to see all of these storylines on display in this sort of movie. Um, And I don't know. It's like, I'm always torn. It's like, do I give it credit or do I condemn, you know? And it's like, I I guess I try and do both, even though often they seem to counteract each other. I don't have any, (laughs) like, specific counters to that, but I would say that probably we are um, shortchanging the early 90s because I do know that generally in, in representation, we backslid from where we were in the 90s in terms of racial representation and diversity. And um, we're getting better at, at, mm. at sexuality diversity and some gender diversity a little bit. But I still feel like, you know, the 80s and 90s, there was some really uh, thoughtful work going on. And, you know, I, I would, I think we don't give audiences and creators from that time period cre- as much credit as we should because we're like, ah, it was old. Yeah, and that's totally fair. Like I said, it's kind of a cop out. <laughs> <laughs> so I just had two quick kind of wrap up ish things. The first being, can we talk about the basement and how it's just like this labyrinth? It's so like big. who? How is that even mm. a place that exists? Like, does he own the entire yeah. like? It feels very. It feels like a set a little bit, <laughs> yeah. but it's my, not an effective. My one. note is, how is this basement so huge? Although I have, uh, yeah, it, it does play into. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned this with your descent into hell with Clarice and Hannibal, the idea of um, serial killers kind of having an underworld that they go to, um, sometimes very literal, but there's um, there's the thing of like, there's compartmentalization that often happens or appears to happen with serial killers, like Jerry Brudos, the uh, the shoe fetish slayer. He's the one who kept all the, his kill equipment and some bodies in his garage. And he just kept the door locked and told his wife never to go in there. And she never went in there. And... Um, there are other things. There was a, I think his name is Joseph Callinger dug a literal hole that he would go down into and do some interesting things with his, his feces. Um, it's a weird story all around. (laughs) Um, but there's, but there's a lot of things. John Wayne Gacy literally burying the bodies of the boys that he murdered under his floorboards. Um, some of it's just, you know, okay, you put bodies down in the ground, but some of it is um, this very, I hesitate to call it, you know, Jungian collective unconscious thing, but this this narrative of you put the dark things away somewhere where you don't have to see them unless you choose to engage with them, um, that is both yeah. appealing to the killers and also appealing to the people who are telling stories about them. And um, you know, just like you mentioned, you know, Clarice going down into hell to meet Hannibal, we see her going down into, you know, Jane Gum's upper floor of his house is a mess, too. But mm-hmm. it's nothing like downstairs. And it's also where he is, as far as you want to take it, he feels free to be himself. You know, it's also where the mm-hmm. tuck, dan- tuck scene happens. It's where it's where all the things yeah. where he has let down his guard happen. And it's his world. Um you know, and it's filled with the specters of the women who have died before and all this stuff. We don't get any, um, we don't get any, uh, mazes or anything, but I can't help but think of like a labyrinth mm-hmm. with a minotaur, um, a little bit too, when, especially when she's sort of lost down there. Uh, I don't know if there's, if that was going on or not, but do you I, think, I think, of do it you think he built, I, I got the sense that he built that hole, but it also looks like a really nice well, but I don't know why anyone would have put a house on top of a well. I think the book explains something up. 
no, actually, I don't know that it explains it. There just was a well in the basement. I it's think when he weird. bought the house. But I mean, Which that would that would that would imply weird. that he expanded his his basement well beyond the boundaries of his house because I don't think anyone builds a house on top <laughs> of a well intentionally. Um, That's what but, I was thinking. Is like and like so seemingly his basement extends to underneath other people's houses that they don't know about or something because it was it was know, man. definitely Huge. like a labyrinth. Uh, the and what's while Clary while the lights are still on every every turn that she makes is like decomposing body in a bathtub like his actual uh suit that he's been crafting out of skin like it's just like it, like you you were Horror alluding show. to again yeah this sort of like descent it's into haunted, hell it's, like, it's a haunted house like it's a halloween going to the haunted house type of haunted house where you know there are jump scares <laughs> and everything else not not exactly like a like a fictional yeah. haunted house. That's the horror moment you're talking about. Is this a horror movie? There you go. Yeah, I mean, this is this is her yeah. final girl segment where we see her, you know, broken down and and then finally mm-hmm. triumphant. And if um, you or any of your listeners have watched the fantastic movie Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, they give a great breakdown of what is symbolically going on during a final girl scene. Wow, I haven't seen that one. Have you seen it? Yeah, I haven't seen that either. It's it's hilarious. Um, it's a it's a mockumentary of interviewing the next big J- like the next big uh. Jason Voorhees. Um, but one of the things he d- he tells the interviewer is that the girl see you know it, it seizes the villains weapon and then glosses it as she's empowering herself with cock like (laughs) but um, but basically it's this idea that there's there's sort of a a, even in the the final girl trope of horror there's a there's sort of a gender role twisting thing that tends to happen which i think i think this plays on just enough and that's you know it helps maintain a little bit of the horror feel after hannibal is gone so did you say you had one more thing yeah the last thing was i i in my research i found that you know, Jodie Foster worked with the FBI, but so did Scott Glenn. Uh, there, there was a lot of FBI interaction, but and apparently they'd, they'd been very closed off to sets before this and movies. Um, but there, the set designer was allowed to go tour Quantico and actually see everything there, and was surprised at how bland everything was. Everything was very and mm-hmm. and then Jonathan Demi was like, "Run with that! Like, make it bland, make it look boring in Quantico." Um, and so, I think the FBI, from what I understood from the reading that I was doing is they were they were kind of wanting to and hoping to use this as a recruitment tool to get women to join the fbi i definitely considered it yeah yeah for for more than a hot second yeah and then i was like no i'm not that physically active or but, <laughs> um but interesting you mentioned that they got to go there because i thought that this this movie does a really good job of showing that um crawford's job is not particularly glamorous or particularly mm-hmm. respected, um, which, you know, by the, the late 80s, early 90s, it was getting there. But the BSU, the Behavioral Sciences Unit, was in the basement for a long time. Mm-hmm. No windows, cramped. They just shoved them in a corner and were like, sure, if this works, great. I mean, again, if you want to go watch the TV show Mindhunter, it goes into that in, in detail. Um, <laughs> yep. Nowadays, it, if you go to um, a conference like Thriller Fest, at least when I was there, there was an FBI she was she is a member of the fbi who is a cultural liaison who was specifically wow. there to give us her contact information so that if we rep- if we depicted the fbi we did it accurately i still have her wow. contact information somewhere <laughs> That's but it was crazy. it was That's wild cool. cuz it was this this and she gave me a little fbi sticker so uh this this year we have been taking a final vote when we finish a project um to determine whether or not we felt like the book or the movie was better it's nothing definitive. It's just our opinions, and um, it's just for a little bit of fun discussion here at the end. 
Um, so we're going to do that. Um, at, I don't know, either James or I will start, and then we'll have you be the third and possibly tiebreaker. We'll see oh, how gosh. it plays out. Um, and then um, so so take a moment to decide where you're leaning. Um, we, you can kind of explain it if you want. But before we get to that, I actually want to point out a, a, a funny moment I, I caught this time. During the final credits, I watched Anthony Hopkins walk away. He does this really slow, slow stroll as he's following Chilton for a really long time. I don't know if you noticed, but mm-hmm. that scene goes on for like the entire credits. I am convinced that I saw his hat blow off at one point <laughs> and then have, have to run, run after it and get it, put it back on and then start doing the walk again. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty certain it's there. Wow. I thought it was a funny moment. So look for that next time you watch it. <laughs> I was, I watched that whole scene too. And, and was, I guess I was just looking at the names more, but that's, that's, I was, and I was thinking like, damn, like somewhere out there, once, once they turn the corner, Anthony Hopkins is just hanging off. Like he's just hanging out, getting some craft services and stuff. Like after he like walked out of the, the line of sight of the camera. Uh, that's funny that I'll look for that hat blown off next time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, unless it was somebody else, but I, I'm like, he was very far away. So it's hard to tell. Um, and I had a big, big screen. So that helped a little bit, but yeah, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, um, do you want to start with your vote, James? Are you, you want to kick things off? Yeah, honestly, I haven't thought that much about it. Uh, should have before we started recording. Should have. I'm going to, I, I'm very tempted to go book. But just for cultural context and like sort of what it means to the zeitgeist and how iconic it is, I'm going to go movie. We have Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster with career defining performances. Jonathan Demme basically doing the same career defining performance. It's it's a it's one of the most immaculately directed films that I've that we've watched recently for sure. I, I'm willing to say that, and it's so subtle in doing it as well. I don't think it's like mm. very flashy necessarily, but the choices that are made all I think you can pause at any situation or any moment in either of any of the what four interrogation scenes between between Clarice and and Hannibal and you know where the character stands just from the just from that pause screen I'm sure you can tell like who's you know who's taken power like who's who's kind of got the edge in the conversation at that point um it's I think just just in terms of like the filmmaking techniques the blocking the the direction that was given to the actors i think all in all that just makes for for me picking the movie and it edges out the book even though i understand that it's nearly a screenplay the book is basically the screenplay for the movie and (laughs) and so like credit credit to where where credit's due absolutely and i'm not going to belabor the point much um but you know it's the movie for me too uh for all the reasons you said it's also the thing i saw first so i think it's near and dear to me in that way but reading the book uh i mentioned this last week uh, it really has shifted some of the respect. Like I have a lot of respect for this movie, but it shifts a little bit because so much of it is on the page. So much of it is Thomas Harris. And I think you have to give him tons of credit for this story. Um, and like you said, it's an extremely faithful adaptation. So if you like this story, like you look back at the book, tons of credit where, where credits do, like you said, but yeah, it's the movie I think for me. What about you, Caitlin? Well, like I said, I haven't read the book since I was much younger. Um, yeah, and you probably didn't know we were going to put you on the spot here, so I apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's also true, but um, I'm going to be contrarian and say the book just because I do like, and I remember I really it. enjoying having the interiority of both Clarice yeah. and Hannibal, and some of the, I think you get some Chilton POV, if I recall correctly, like very briefly, I seem to recall that, um, maybe just like briefly dipping into his head, but, um, and I remember just really appreciating how detailed everything was and again it's that detail that they were able to pull through to the movie to make those Mm -hmm. um to make the intimacy 
work on screen, even though you can't see what's going on behind the scenes in, in their heads. I mean, we can see it because it's such a great movie. I love it, you know, and, and represent the book. You got to. Uh, also, you probably love the six fingers of uh, Hannibal Lecter oh, in the book, yeah. right? <laughs> um, I love it. I love it. So wrapping up here, I just want to give our listeners a chance to, uh, if they want to find you online, find out about your books. And if you have anything new coming out, let them know. I do. I have two new things oh, coming yeah? out. Yeah. Um, on June 16th, I have an audio project coming out that's a tie-in for Vampire the Masquerade. You may have heard that there's a new Ooh, video game yeah. and a new uh, set of the core rule books coming out, or game is coming out, core books are out. Um, the It's a wow. compilation, so it's three different authors, myself, Genevieve Gornachek, and Cassandra Kaw. Uh, we all wrote novellas that are very different and um, not at all linked, except that they're in the same world. They gave us a lot of free reign. Uh, the the collection's called Walk Among Us, and my particular one is called The Land of Milk and Honey, which is about a uh, a vampire who is running an arts and farming commune in northern Portland, and right by the airport. <laughs> and um, she's the community manager, and she really likes taking care of her sheep and her people. And um, then she falls in love with one of the people, and things go about as badly as All you'd right. expect. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing coming out is uh, a novella, this one in print, an ebook called Yellow Jessamine. It's a gothic horror novella of a woman who is extremely paranoid, and then her paranoia turns out to be right, but in the weirdest way possible. And that's coming out September 5th. Awesome. Yeah. Um, you can find information <laughs> on that. My website is caitlinstarling.com, and my Twitter, which I am most active on, is C-S-E-E underscore Starling. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, Caitlin. This has been a super fun conversation. I'm glad we finally got to have it. I feel like yeah. it's been a long overdue. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so glad we got to do it. Thanks again. If you liked this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. Super helpful to us, helps us get the word out, uh, and we appreciate it very much. If you wanted to help support the podcast in another way, we do have a Patreon. Uh, if you wanted to go check that out, it's patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we have all kinds of tiers in there. It's everything from our bonus episodes that come out monthly all the way up to being able to influence what we what we're actually going to cover on the podcast. So you can, there's a tier where you can get tokens and put it towards projects. And if you wanted to check that out, please go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and help support what we're doing here. Absolutely. We actually just released a, no, a new Patreon exclusive episode on the Return of the King animated film from the 1980s. That was quite a uh, 80s movie clusterfuck. I don't know. It was something else, man. It was yeah. uh, it was something else. And we had a fun conversation about it. So if that, if that sounds interesting to you, definitely check out our Patreon. Um, also, follow us on social media. We're at Ink to Film on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And we have a Facebook group called the Council of Inklings where we post polls and we post news about adaptations. So join that as well if you're so inclined. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. We just want to thank Caitlin Starling one more time for being on the pod. It was a lot of fun having her on talking about Silence of the Lambs. Make sure to check out her book, The Luminous Dead, and the other new novellas that she announced. Check those out as well. Follow her on Twitter, all of the above. Oh, and we are going to be covering our next week's project is I Am Legend, uh, the Richard Matheson book and film. We're going to combo it together into a single episode. So you can look forward to that if you're a fan. If you stuck around this long, you know what's coming next. So, you know, good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, going to be an interesting project, to say the least. Uh, been a long time since I've seen that movie, so I'm looking forward to it. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Until next time. Thanks for listening.